Thank you, Millie and Brad. Y'all were so ready to go back to church. I know we all are, but I'm going to tell you, my kids are going to miss those puppets when we do. Millie, you're doing a great job. We're very thankful for you. Uh, the struggle for those of us with small kids at home is real. We hope this has been an encouragement to you all to keep trying until something works, uh, to take advantage of the opportunity we have to do church together at home. Uh, we hope that you all are gathered with people uh, right now. If you have Bibles, go ahead and, and grab them. We're going to be reading from Matthew 21, another parable from Jesus. We'll read and then we'll pray. This is verse 33. Jesus says, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the harvest time had come, he sent his slaves to the tenant collect his produce. But the tenants seized his slaves and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other slaves, more than the first, and they treated them in the same way. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and get his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Now, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and leave the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the produce at the harvest time. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is amazing in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that produces the fruit of the kingdom. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and it will crush the one on whom it falls. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they realized he was speaking about them. They wanted to arrest him, but they feared the crowds because they regarded him as a prophet. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, Lord, we, we invite you, God, now to be with us wherever it is, Lord, that we're gathered. We ask you, Holy Spirit, invade our homes, our hearts, May your hands of peace on us. In times like this, in a week in particular, like the one we've had these weeks now, Lord, we need the peace of your presence. We long for you and for each other. So will you gather us to yourself now, Lord? We ask you, Holy Spirit, to be at work in the words of Jesus, that they might be alive and active in our own hearts. Help us, God, to see ourselves and what you have for us. We look to you now, Jesus. Help us to see you, Lord, as you are. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So another parable of Jesus. We've been looking at these parables now for the last uh, few weeks. And I think it might be helpful, actually, before we jump into the story, to spend some time maybe remembering together why it is that Jesus taught in parables. Uh, a parable, of course, I suspect we all probably know. If I was to ask, you would probably say something like, a parable is like a, a short story, fictional story maybe, that um, Jesus told and other people told. Surprisingly, Jesus wasn't the only one. He didn't invent parables. They'd been around for a long time. These were short stories that were meant to uh, reveal a deeper, and in the case of Jesus in particular, kind of surprising truth. Jesus taught in parables because he was trying to say something slant, as some have said, that he couldn't say directly. 
trying to get people to see something um, on their own, to come to a, a sort of realization. In Hebrew, if you translate the word parable, it's interesting because uh, the word is translated as a dark saying or a riddle. And I think that that's interesting because that's actually not how we tend to think of parables. If you ask me what is a parable, I'm, what immediately comes to mind is I'm going to think something more like a fable, right? It's a, a short, maybe a kind of um, cuter fictional story that reveals a moral lesson, uh, more like the tortoise and the, and the hare, some oft-forgotten but very important truth like slow and steady wins the race. You know, that's the point of a fable. And yet a riddle according to the Hebrew, right, the translation, is something different than that. Um, a riddle is uh, something that's sort of meant to catch you off guard, expose bias and blind spots and assumption, take you by surprise so that you start to see things a different way. So if we're thinking of, of riddles, uh, for example, a famous riddle that comes to mind is, of course, the riddle about the surgeon and the sun. Uh, you've no doubt all heard this one before, but it goes something like this. Amanda and his son are in a terrible accident and are rushed to the hospital in critical care. The doctor looks at the boy and exclaims, I can't operate on this boy. He's my son. And then as the riddle teller, you're supposed to say, how can this be? And of course, the answer to the riddle is that uh, the surgeon is a woman. The surgeon is the mother. Um, and so the whole point of the riddle, uh, the way that it works is it's only a riddle if your audience assumes that surgeons are most often men, that women are unlikely to be or won't ever be uh, surgeons, that those won't be women. And it, it works then to sort of expose that bias or that false assumption that keeps you from uh, seeing reality so that, uh, you know, at the end when you, when you say as the riddle teller, well, you know, the surgeon is a woman, it's his mom, then the person having heard the riddle is supposed to say, oh my, you know, oh wow, gee, didn't know that I was a sexist. <laughs> That's kind of how it works. Uh, and then the riddle has like done its job. It's caught you off guard, helped you to see something that you didn't uh, even know that you didn't see, like a, a kind of blind spot. And when you think about it that way, uh, you start to understand what the Hebrew language is really trying to get us to understand about parables and why Jesus used them. That's actually more in line with what Jesus was trying to do. It's not that he was playing games with people or trying to trick them, but what he was trying to do was expose something these biases, these blind spots, these false assumptions people had about God, about the world, that actually kept them from seeing him and understanding who he was and what he was trying to do. These parables that Jesus told about the good news, about the good news of the kingdom of heaven was surprising. And rather than just saying it directly, Jesus wanted to help people kind of come to it on their own. And so he told these stories. So now let's, let's look at the story that Jesus tells. He tells a story, it's uh, firstly helpful to remember that Jesus is telling this story about himself and he's telling this story about um, the people who opposed him and his ministry. So he's telling the story, he's often at the heart, or the kingdom of heaven is at the heart of these parables, and he's speaking to an audience that is largely comprised of people who would have been opposed to him and the work that he was doing. And so uh, we read the parable, I'll sort of spare you the, the, the summary or um, a recounting of it, but just so that we're all on the same page, um, God is the owner of the vineyard. The vineyard, of course, is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus tells us this at the end of, um, of the passage. So God is the owner of the, of the vineyard. The vineyard is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, the fruit 
of the vineyard is uh, the works of the kingdom of heaven, all the good things that were supposed to be being cultivated and grown and produced by virtue of the kingdom of heaven. And these servants that are sent into uh, the vineyard, they're the ancient prophets of Israel, those who had come in order to like tend to and till and do the work of God, those who had been killed, stoned, in fact, put to death. So that's who the servants are. And then that sort of leaves the question, well, then who are these wicked tenants? And the answer, of course, uh, for those of us who are familiar enough with the Bible anyway, is that um, the wicked tenants are the Pharisees and the scribes. These would have been, uh, of course, the religious rulers, the leading elite of Jesus' day, not just religious leaders, uh, political leaders. Um, uh, they were wealthy. They were people uh, sort of at the top of um, their class and rank. And it's to them, primarily, Jesus is teaching or giving this parable. But, of course, they don't see it that way. They don't see themselves as the wicked tenants. So when Jesus turns to them and he asks them, so what would you, if, what do you expect that the owner is going to say to these, to these tenants? How will he respond to them? It's why they say, well, of course, what he should do, this owner, is he should put them to death, not just to death, a miserable death. They should die a miserable death, and then the owner should give the vineyard um, to new tenants. <laughs> and, of course, their assumption is that um, not only are they not the tenants, but that who we're talking about, these tenants have to be the enemies of God. That's obvious to them. These are people who are opposed to the will and work of God, which to them would have been um, not themselves, obviously, but someone like Rome. Rome had, of course, been granted control over Israel, at least temporarily. And so what they hoped or expected Jesus to be saying is that um, that was all about to change, that God was, in fact, coming to cut Rome down. And so you better watch, you know, your butts, Rome. Uh, so they're a little bit surprised, of course, um, <laughs> to say the least. There's like this kind of twist right at the end, an aha moment where Jesus has to look at them and say very directly and bluntly, it's the big reveal, um, it's you. From you, the kingdom of heaven is going to be taken and given to a people who are going to produce its fruits. So that's, you know, that's great. And I think we all have this moment when we come to the end of a parable uh, or maybe even any teaching of Jesus and we uh, ask ourselves, well, so what does that mean? What is that supposed to say to me now? And in what way is that good news? So I have a couple of observations that I want to share with you. And I really do, my heart and my hope is that these observations, we would spend this time together really sharing reflections with you that have come out of my own time of sitting and reading prayerfully and reflectively uh, with a story like this, a kind of Lectio exercise that we've encouraged you towards a number of times rather um, than an academic uh, exercise. This really um, is, I hope, to be able to demonstrate how God is at work in the Bible through stories like this, how we're sort of meant to sit with them or receive them. So the first um, thing, I've got two observations, and the first one has a couple of subpoints. so for those of you who are note-takers. The first thing uh, that I notice if I'm just trying to make sense of a, a story like this is to say, well, um, this is bad news for the Pharisees. That seems, you know, rather obvious. I didn't go to seminary for nothing, you know. So if I'm sitting with my Bible, that's the first and obvious thing, right? This is, this is bad news for Pharisees, and so then I then it's like, well, what does that mean uh, for me exactly? And there are two things, I think, really, that um, I, f I feel compelled to sit with as a result. The first of which is to go, okay, well, if I know the point of a parable is to help sort of expose biases, blind spots, 
uh, my own false assumptions, well then I know that I can't just assume I'm not a Pharisee because to assume I'm not a Pharisee and therefore this doesn't apply to me would probably not be a great idea. Uh, so maybe the first and most faithful thing to do is to ask the question, uh, where in fact uh, am I more like these wicked tenants than I would maybe want to admit or be able to see? In what ways might I be blind? And so I'll just prayerfully ask that question before the Lord. Lord, where am I maybe more prone uh, to violence in my own heart than I'm able to see? Where am I, Lord, maybe stumbling over expectations, expectations I have of you, expectations I have for other people? And I'll just ask a question like that prayerfully, think reflectively, put it before the Lord, and see what he says. And that's the right and faithful thing to do, to start with a question like that. But then secondly, I, I think, after having done that, I think it's important for us to remember, for me to be reminded, as I was in my own time of prayer with the Lord, that I am, in fact, not a Pharisee. That actually, by God's grace, and this is the good news, right, that Jesus was intending to communicate through these parables, is that I am, in fact, someone who has been saved by grace. The good news that Jesus came um, to teach through these parables is that God is committed to doing everything he can to overcome our hypocrisy, our meanness, our, tendency, our tendencies towards arrogance, so that we can see him as he really is. That's the good news of the kingdom. That's the, the good news that, of the gospel, is that God is fiercely committed to this work, to making sure that he overcomes even my, my own sin, my own heart, my own bias, my own assumptions, blind spots, which are most surely there that God is going to be tireless in his commitments to overcoming those things so that he can get the good gifts of his kingdom into the hearts of people like me. That that is, in fact, what Jesus has done. That's the promise. And that is very important to remember when I'm sitting with a story like this. I may have been a Pharisee. I may have tendencies that are Pharisee-like, but I am, in fact, not a Pharisee. I am someone who's saved by grace. The stone the builders have rejected has become for me and for us a cornerstone, a sure and firm foundation, somewhere I can stand. And this feels so important to me, so helpful, such a gift from God to remember, particularly at a moment like this that we're in, you know, culturally, is that I am, um, Lord, with all my, all my tendencies um, to see things wrongly or to be deceived or to believe that I'm right. And God knows, y'all, we live in a culture that is convinced of our rightness. It's so interesting to me. I've been reflecting on this a lot. In spite of all of our differences, um, divisions in this country, it seems that we are most united by our commitment to wanting and longing to be right. <laughs> oh, we all uh, really want to be right. And it's hard to know where do we look for what's true or how do, where do we get our confidence in. And I turn to a passage like this, and what I believe I heard the Lord say is, I have come to make sure that you were able to see me for who I am, that you might know me. That is God's commitment. That is the good news of the kingdom. Jesus can be and is a firm foundation for my feet. It is, in fact, possible for me to know and recognize him when I see him. And in a world like the one we're living in, a moment like this, where it's so hard to know what to believe and what's true, that comes to us, I believe, as very, very good news.
I'm thankful for it. All right. So the second point, that's the first one. First observation, this parable is bad news for Pharisees. Uh, The second is this. We've been given the kingdom of heaven. So firstly, this parable is bad news for Pharisees. Secondly, we've been given the kingdom of heaven. According uh, to the parable, the kingdom is a vineyard. So we've been tasked, according to the parable, with cultivating, attending to, um, and harvesting the fruits of God's kingdom, which, of course, are things like love and peace and justice. That's our job. That's our responsibility. And I can note that in my mind. And then if I'm honest, sort of immediately what comes to mind for me is, man, that sounds like a lot of work and a lot of responsibility. (laughs) That feels hard. And like maybe if I don't do it well, then what Jesus is saying is that it will be taken away. So we better get it right. But let's remember this is a parable. So I have to be suspicious of those thoughts, right? That's the purpose and the point of a parable. It's to, um, to get at what is most immediately or most readily comes to mind. What do I assume Jesus is saying? And is that really the same thing as what he is saying? So the first thing that comes to mind is that that sounds like a lot of responsibility. Better make sure that I do it right. So let's examine that for a moment. As, we were, as I was just saying before, I'm thinking a lot about the fact that right now we do live in a culture that's sort of obsessed with being right. And we're united in this. In spite of our differences, this is kind of a, a tie that binds. Uh, we want to be on the right side of history. We want to have the right theology, the right politics. I want to have the right stuff, the right relationships. And um, on the surface, this sounds admirable. Because, of course, what do you, what's the alternative to want to be wrong? But let's examine it for a minute. I, and that's really the invitation of the Lord, right? Like, what's driving that? What's really underneath it? And if I'm honest... It probably has something to do with a need to secure something for myself, to earn the prize. So if I know, thinking about the parable, if the owner of the vineyard's coming around, gathering up his harvest, well, I want to be the one to have the prize pumpkins, you know? That's me. That, that's my tendency. And so I better make sure that I get it right and that I've done the right thing and I've done a, a good job. So what if I know that's true? I see that sort of in myself. Well, then the invitation is to put that before the Lord, to open my hands and say prayerfully, Holy Spirit, that cannot be what you're saying, so help me hear what you are saying. Help me see Jesus. And when I did this, truly, on my couch, in my living room, the first thing that came to mind for me was what it was like to grow up in my grandparents' garden. I'm sitting with this parable thinking I'm praying, and then sort of immediately I have this memory of being in, in their garden. And y'all, this was a magical place, uh, no exaggeration, a huge garden. They grew everything from grapevines to apple trees to watermelons. There was this fountain full of these giant bullfrogs. Um, and the way I remember it anyway, roses as big as my face, where I would like put my face in them and I still smell them. It's this beautiful, magical place. And it was a lot of work for my grandfather. <laughs> I never saw so much of that part, but no doubt it was um, a, lot of, a lot of work. He was permanently sort of stooped over from all the time he spent uh, looking at the ground. But for me, it was mostly just a lot of fun. I got to do just enough work with him to feel like it was mine, to take part in it, 
to be a part of something. And all of the work that we had to do was really just about getting out these good gifts that I could then just go and uh, share with other people and feel really proud of. It was a source of so much joy for me up being uh, there with my grandpa. And so I was thinking about this this morning, sitting on my couch, and could feel the sort of gentle, loving, gracious reminder of the Lord. When Jesus told parables about the kingdom of heaven, he told other stories that sounded a lot like this. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like buried treasure that you find in a field. A man finds this buried treasure, and then he goes and he sells everything he has in his joy so that he can then secure that field and that treasure. Or the kingdom of heaven is like this beautiful and rare pearl. Or the kingdom of heaven is like this epic wedding feast that everybody wants to attend. And as I'm sitting with those things, I think what Jesus was really trying to say, in other words, is that the kingdom of heaven is something you don't want to miss and therefore something you don't want to lose because it's so good and full of so much joy and love. And then I was reminded of Psalm 51. Uh, those of you familiar with this, the Create in Me a Clean Heart Psalm. It's a psalm that David wrote on what was no doubt the darkest hour, darkest night of his life. He's having to come to terms with the Pharisee in his own heart, who he is. And he says in this part of the psalm, he says, Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and renew a steadfast spirit within me. On the darkest night of his life, when he was on the verge of losing everything, David's greatest fear was not that he would lose his kingdom or his crown. His greatest fear is that he would lose God and the source of his joy. That's what really terrified him the most. Not that he hadn't gotten it right or that he'd messed up, but that as a result, he would lose this thing that meant the most to him. And as I was thinking about that, I mean, that totally changes the way we understand what it is that Jesus is saying. If I focus so much on the fact that God has given me a vineyard and therefore given me a kingdom, given me responsibility, if I focus too much on that responsibility and that work, and I lose sight of the king and who he is, what ends up happening in my own heart is what happens in the parable. I become more possessive than I should be. I become more aggressive than I should be. I become indifferent, hardened. But what if the invitation is really to say, what if we like focused on the king in the way that we're supposed to so that we might see the kingdom and the work that we're called to do in it the way that we're meant to? What if really the fruit of our labor is that kind of joy sort of naturally draws people in rather than keeping people out? is so good. This is our firm foundation. It is a place for us to stand. We can know Jesus. We can see him as he is and who he is is so abundantly good. Uh, nobody knew this probably better than Paul, the threat of being a Pharisee. Um, Paul, in fact, was a Pharisee. And one of my favorite moments in the Bible is what happens um, is in Philippians 3, and we kind of get, we get an opportunity to see into the change that happened, has happened in, in Paul's own heart. And so I just, I want to leave you uh, with this invitation, this hope. I hope that Paul's writing, that his praise could become sort of your own prayer, something for us to hope would become true in our own hearts. He says this, 
He says, if anyone has reason to be confident in the flesh, in your, your prizes, what you've done right, it's me. I have more, in fact, he says. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as lost because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He writes, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish in order that I might gain him and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, comes from my prizes or what I've done right, but one that comes through faith in him. The righteousness from God based on faith. I want to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. I want to become like him in his death, if somehow I might attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this, or have already reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own, because Jesus has made me his own. Amen. May it be so of us, it be our prayer, and go to work in our vineyards with that same heart, if um, you need something to pray into, very lastly, and then we'll move to our questions. But there's a song by Maverick City. And they are singing me into the throne room of heaven um, a lot lately these days. But there's a song that they have that's called um, My Heart, Your Home. And I would just commend it to you. Maybe go turn it on, listen to it, sing it, pray it. Um, praise Jesus through it. It's a gift. All right, you can um, now go and maybe prepare communion, grab your communion elements. Those of you who are uh, serving communion to each other will make space for that. We'll have our, our questions. I'm just going to read. I have three questions here for reflection. You can either choose to reflect on those quietly on your own or talk about them together with those with whom you're doing church. The first is this. Where do you feel most desperate to get it right in your life? right now? What lie about Jesus or yourself are you most tempted to believe? Where do you find joy, not escape, right now? Where do you find joy, not escape, right now? Let's think through those things and then we can just prayerfully put them before the Lord. All right, we'll close by praying the Lord's Prayer together. Come, Holy Spirit. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. We hope to see you today for communion pickup. Come by from 4 to 6. We'll be in the parking lot. We would love to see you spend some time together. Bring a chair, bring your mask, bring your kids. Uh, we'll be here. We'd love to see you. Amen. <laughs>